Hi and hello watch fans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, Rob Nuts, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker and my co-host Alan Ben-Joseph calling in from Amsterdam. Today we dive back into the mailbag and address some of the long outstanding questions from you, our dear listeners. We're going to kick things off with a question from Sana and she says, if you can dream a little, what are you boys hoping to see at Watchers and Wonders this year? Now, this leads on from a question that our dear friend Waki asked us last week. And Alon, I'm going to kick it over to you to answer right off the top. Thank you, Sana and Waki, for these questions. We discussed it in last week's episode. I hope you've been well, Rob. Um, the busy week for me. How was yours? All over the place. I was in Munich on Friday doing some interesting watch-related things that I hope you will all be aware of very, very soon. But it's right now it's top secret. I'm quite curious, actually, because what can you do in Munich? I can do a lot of things in Munich, but very few of them are of interest to you. Sounds exciting. Okay, back to Watches and Wonders. So it's around the corner. I'm going four days, you're going three days, and we're spending more than two and a half days together. Some appointments we'll do separately. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious. I guess the biggest anticipated or expected watch is a GMT Master 2 in the black and red, nicknamed the Coke. That's what I'm expecting. What else? Poof. I, I, I need to, uh, collect my thoughts. Well, you took the obvious one straight off the top. I mean, I was also thinking, God, I hope we see the Coke. I hope we see the Coke. I'd like to see it on the Jubilee. I think a lot of people probably would think that the Coke looks more at home on the Oyster bracelet, but either way, I am excited. I might even put my name on a waiting list somewhere so I can enjoy several years of disappointment because that's severely lacking in my life yeah. at the moment. So while you're cogitating, I'm going to go through some of the brands that I'm most excited to visit. Now, I don't necessarily have models that I want to see in the same way that we've both identified the Coke as a possible combat candidate. But I would love, love, love to see more variations on existing pieces from Hermes, the H08, which I really, really enjoy. And I think that that's one of the better new watches on the market. I'd like to just see some more colors, really, some purple, maybe some green, some, I don't know, fluorescent yellow worked for Hublot. Talking of Hublot, I'm interested to see what Hublot does. I don't have any particular desires because I'm sure whatever I could desire from Hublot would be way out of my price range, so I dare not pray for it. I am really hopeful, really, really hopeful that Parmigiani Fleurier releases some more 36mm Tonda PFs because I love those models, but there aren't enough dial colors for me. There is one that I like. It's called something like Silver Sands, I think. It's a sort of pale gray, almost Flinke-style dial, and I would love to have that watch, but with maybe a dark aubergine or a dark green dial or even a blue dial would be nice in that size because I like the 36mm. I really, really see that new PF as a rival to the Rolex Date just, no joke, no word of a lie. I, I think that highly of what Parmigiani's doing, so I'm excited about that. I also can't wait to visit Ressence. I don't know if Benoit and his team has come up with a new piece or whether we'll just see variations on stuff we've seen before, but it's always exciting to see how someone with such creativity and, and true novelty approaches these major 
events. Alon, have you had a chance to consider what you might like to see from the show? So I've been reading my backlog of magazines. So I still had a owner's magazine from Patek Philippe lying around for 2001. And in one of those interviews, Nick Fawkes asked Jerry what he's been working on and where he's going. So they said they're working on something spectacular to be launched in two years. So that's 20, 2023. So that got my interest. So I'm very curious what we're going to see about the flip. A lot of people are anticipating a Nautilus for gentlemen in red gold or pink gold. That might happen, but I think it's maybe too early because we just saw the white gold version replacing the stainless steels 5711. I guess they're going to do maybe something more for the ladies this year. So that's my feeling. I really hope that Jejal Le Courtre will shock us with something new or literally a revolution in style or design. They joined the CPO game. I don't know if you picked up on that, Rob. Very silently, they announced that they had the next amount of watches that they refurbished, like pre-owned, they bought refurbished and are selling themselves as CPO. I really hope that IWC does something new. I find that they were a bit boring the last few years. I think it was cool how they played on the Pantone trend and created their own colors like the woodland. And But I, I want something new from them. I don't know what it is. I kind of like their most recent launch, the IWC Portuguese or 40 mil with salmon dial, but that's like a no-brainer, nothing exciting. I did not like the stainless steel bracelet on the Portuguese automatic chrono. So that's something I did not like. I have no idea what Tudor is going to do. It's very difficult to guess. They didn't release a teaser. So that's, that's difficult. I expect a lot of fireworks from Luis Nalda, especially since it's now a full year that they're independent with the So Wine group. So I expect a lot of things there. I guess with their sister brand, Jael Perigo, we'll see more like extensions of the Laureato. It seems that model is picking up steam again. By the collectors, a lot of respect. Frédéric Constant have a anniversary coming up and they are solid. It's their first time at Watches and Wonders this year. So I'm actually very interested to see what they are going to do. And their sister brand, Alpina, is a slow burner. I expect a lot from them. I was very excited with their caliber. They actually remade a manufactured bumper automatic caliber in a retro-inspired 70s case. But I think that was a rather bold move because it's not per se a very commercial move. So it's actually very cool to see for them. It's also the first time at Watches and Wonders this year in Geneva. From Glashütter, what about a Lange Söhne, Rob? I, I would love to see a less is more chronograph from them. No complications. Maybe a competitor for the Portuguese chronograph. What do you think? Well, it sounds nice. I don't know if we'll see it. I'm not sure there's a broad demand for it. I think that the chronographs that Langer has done in the past have been some of the finest ever made. So far be it from me to request anything different of them. I suppose one thing I'd always like to see more of, and there's a dearth of this in the industry, in my opinion, are central minute chronographs. You know, with the minute hand in the central position beneath the seconds hand. 
like the Omega Speedmaster Mark IV that I'm actually wearing today, that is a widely underused feature. I know the Moser Streamliner does it and does it very, very well. I would love to see Langer do something like that, perhaps, especially if they put it in a honey gold case with a black dial and honey gold markings and uh, honey gold hands and honey, 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 honey. Yes, honey. I think that last year Chopar made some amazing pieces. And they got some headlines, especially with their Sapphire minute repeating watch. Um, I hope that they also make a few style breaks, a bit more contemporary, some more modern stuff. They tried or they did with the Alpine Eagle. Yeah, what do you think about the Alpine Eagle? I've always curious because it's right on the edge of like modern steel sports watch classics, but doesn't often get mentioned in the same breath as the Antarctic or the Octofinissimo, or the Streamliner, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Yeah, so I think it's cool. I think it's great that they did it. It's inspired by a vintage piece from their own collection. I forgot the name, but it's something Saint-Tropez, or I remember it had to do with a location in the south of France, or something like that, or a ski resort, Saint-Maurice, or something like that. And I guess they held on too tight to that DNA, and that didn't let them set their mind free to create something totally contemporary of today, of the now. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's not there yet for me personally, but I'm very happy that they went down that route. Now, going to your, one of your favorite brands, Chapik, I have very high expectations of them because I believe that they're working on reducing the stress on production and waiting lists. They're amping up production. Do you think they're going to launch a new model or are they going to keep the call this year? Oh, I think they have to announce something, but I was speaking to Javier the other day in Geneva about the pressures that he's experiencing right now, being the custodian of such a success story. And it's a bit cruel, actually. I have to say, I've followed Chapek for years since the brand's refoundation and been good friends with Javier for, for many of those years. And I've watched him struggle through not being known, not being taken seriously, having threats of legal action from Chapek's erstwhile partner <laughs> and others, and see him overcome all of this and then oversee the release of the Antarctic and watch the brand suddenly blow up to exactly the level it deserves to be regarded at. And now to have to deal with this new problem of being in too much demand, there are literally thousands of orders backed up waiting to be served. And Chapek is doing its utmost to increase its production to a more sustainable level to satisfy its consumers. They are taking the responsibility for manufacture of even more components than I expected in-house so they can control that production flow a little more stably. And yet the world expects novelty and the brand has to now manage to stay in the news while doing its best to fulfill orders that have already been placed. And of course, the longer orders that have been placed remain unfulfilled, the more chance there is they'll be cancelled or that that order will be moved over to a new product that may be announced so the brand can stay in the limelight while it's figuring out how to survive in this in this new world it has, it has crafted for itself. So there's a lot going on. I think something new will come. 
I cannot guarantee it, but I'm looking forward to it. I, I can say this, I'm pretty sure it won't be a new Antarctic. So um, going from that indie brand, I'm, I'm actually very excited because we're visiting Charles Zuber, which I've never held their watches in my hand. So I'm very curious to see what they are about. We're going to Hotlands, which we know is a sister brand of H. Moser and C, uh, same owners. And uh, they've been, dormant is maybe not the right word, but uh, on ice for quite some time. So I have high expectations there. You mentioned Hermes going from a more feminine uh, point of view. I'm very curious to see what Cartier does this year. It's always good and every year good. And Chanel, um, I'm going to visit them. So I'm curious to see what they're going to bring. If they really, really grew into a uh, serious player like Hermes for that matter. So I guess from day one that SIHH was created and it's called What's the One This Today. Beaumarchais always was the forgotten child, I guess. It's, I guess, the brand that is um, lowest price point, not really manufacture at all. I do believe stunning designed watches, even though they're on the axis of classic watches. Um, I wouldn't say they're misunderstood, but I dare to say they're mismanaged by Richemont. And I've said this, I guess, on several occasions. I think that... Uh, the analogy or the saying, uh, which is, if you love someone or something, set it free. And if it's yours, it will come back. And if it doesn't, it was never yours. So I think Beaumarchais should be set free. And I have a feeling they'll never come back and they'll thrive when they're not in the Richemont nest anymore. So I'm very curious what they're doing with that brand because it, 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 it has not been used to its full potential, in my humble opinion. So very interesting to see. And, and I see Yisek on the list. I don't know, do we have an appointment with them, Rob? We don't, we don't. I'm afraid we have run out of appointment slots. So uh, yeah, Yisek had to miss out, unfortunately. But um, interesting you should say it about Bam and Mercier. I had this like amusing vision in my mind when you were describing Richemont setting them free. I just imagined them like a sort of slightly confused pigeon being held tightly in the hands of Richemont. Although you said when they were set free, they would like, you know, thrive. My feeling is <laughs> I imagine Richemont holding this pigeon just beneath like a jet engine. And then as they throw the pigeon up into the air, it gets sucked straight into the turbine and blown out the back end in a million pieces. That's what I think would happen to Bauer Mercier if they were on their own. I just, I don't know why the brand still exists, if I'm being totally honest. Okay, so you gave me a, a perfect segue. To Mike's question, Mike from Amsterdam, what the hell did Mike ask? That was a perfect segue for. <laughs> well, well was very, we had a very vivid and long discussion on WhatsApp about the rumors of LVMH buying Rishmo. Should we touch upon that right now, Rob? Or do you want to do some more prediction? Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's leave the predictions where they are. I think we've sort of set our pieces. Mostly like we want to see more colors and uh, excited to see what brands will be doing with the already existing classics they have. But this LVMH Richemont thing, I think it's legit. What do you think? So where there is smoke, most often there is fire. Now in the financial sector, they, there is a lot of gossiping. Uh, the markets behave and move on those gossips. The, the one that worked out to be true was the 
huge rumors about Schneider selling writing to CBC, and that happened. But every once in a while, we get these fierce rumors that Patek Philippe is selling, right? Yeah. And those, if we have to believe the Stern family, were always unfounded. Now, I guess this is a different ballgame, a different story. LVMH is a financial holding. It's a financial investment vehicle. Erichuan is as well. They solely focus on luxury companies and products, both of them. So it's not that odd that both of them are considering to invest in each other, right? Because that's their task. Their sole mission and strategy should be find undervalued companies and purchase them. So they're corporate raiders, basically. That's what they are. Now, the funny thing is, both their strategies is not to sell. They usually apply the buy, build, and hold strategy, especially the Alno family. Now, if we look at the DNA or the demographics of the owners, the majority shareholders of both, both owners, so LVMH, the Alno family, the, the, the godfather, the father, is way in his 70s, and so is the owner of Richemont, which is Johan Ruppert. Um, Johan Ruppert has a son that's active in the company, but always was in the background, because as far as I know, he was active within Netapote and Watchfinder, so on the e-commerce side of things, but never worked in one of the maisons as far as I know, and especially not the watchmaking, because Richemont is mostly watchmaking and a bit of fashion with Dunhill and Chloe, and they had the guns with Purday. Um, LVMH literally has several verticals where they started off with spirits, Moet and Hennessy, champagne and uh, cognac and etc. Then they had the jewelry maisons with Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpel, for example. And then they went very heavy into watchmaking. And the funny thing is, our no senior has five children, two marriages, the first batch are a boy and a girl. They are now both very active in the fashion segment of things. I believe one took a position at Dior and one at Louis Vuitton. And from the second marriage, he has three sons. And all three are now very active, where one is, I believe, COO or has a different title just below the final decision maker at Tiffany & Co. And Frederick, the middle one, is CEO of Tag Heuer. And Jean, uh, the third one, is at Louis Vuitton and the watchmaking division. And we saw a big uh, news fact two, three weeks ago, which we discussed on air, that they're bringing back the Daniel Roth brand and watches. And I'm quite sure he had a big say in that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes the CEO of that brand. And the eldest of the three is uh, Alexander, who is at Tiffany & Co., which funnily enough, we don't hear anything about watches there ever since they broke the deal with the Swatch Group, the joint venture they once set up, and that was pre-LVMH. So the only watches we uh, have seen that made a big splash and a very big one added was the collab with Patek Philippe, which we've discussed in length with an article and an article analysis on this show. So if you have uh, missed that, I highly recommend you listening to it. Is it likely to happen? I, I did some math looking at market cap, uh, share value, sales, profits, etc. We could say on average, LVMH is about four times bigger than Richemont. 
So LVMH is very cash rich, but could they, without external or additional financing, just swallow up Rishmo? I don't think so. And obviously they need to pay a hefty premium on the publicly listed share price to make sure that all shareholders will sell them the shares because I don't assume they'll keep Rishmo afloat, which they didn't do with Tiffany or, uh, well, Bulgari wasn't publicly listed, if I'm correct, uh, which were their two last major buys for LVMH. So, and then the, the, the following problem is, what do you do? Do they keep all the brands? Don't they keep the brands? What are the white spots in their brand portfolio? The biggest difference with Swatch Group is Swatch Group um, has the biggest par in the spectrum of luxury. So going from Flick Flack, Swatch, Tissot, uh, Mido, Longines, Omega, uh, Breguet Blancpain, and then I obviously missed out a lot of brands in their pyramid of luxury. Richemont and LVMH focus on the Hotel Logerie. The Caring Group, I think we should mention, they actually let go of watchmaking by selling off the Sowine Group with Gérard Perregaux and Ulysse Nardin. They did keep Pomelato, for example. Could be they will sell that off. But they do have watchmaking aspirations because they invested heavily in uh, Gucci. And Gucci launched a year, year and a half ago, very high-end watches. So I found that an interesting move. Is it likely to happen? On paper, um, it's not clear what Rupert wants. So will his son, or I don't know if he has more children, I think he does, will take over. Arnaud made it crystal clear that his kids are going to take over. So in that sense of legacy and long-term vision, it seems that they want to continue as a family-owned and run business. Rishmo is not that clear. Are there un other buyers? I think so. The question is who though and who's willing to pay the highest premium? I mean, LVMH have shown to be willing paying premiums because they paid a big premium for Bulgari and for Tiffany. So I don't think it will happen in 23. Could happen in the future. Never say never, but I find it a very big bite to eat in one go. What do you think, Rob? Well, it would be stunning for them to actually just swoop in and, like you say, take a big old chomp out of Richemont and uh, assimilate all of those brands into the LVMH portfolio. And I, I do think you're right that they don't have a desire for all of those brands. I believe, yeah, Cartier is the one that they're most interested in. I think um, Arno sees that as a jewel in the crown of Richemont that he'd like to put into the crown of LVMH. And strengthen that side of the business. I also think it might be the end of Bauman Mercier. <laughs> if, if he gets him. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. It's actually funny because I was thinking while listening to you, where could LVMH add more value than Richmond has done till today? I think they are a fantastic financial holding and they add value to their maisons in their matrix structured company. But with Tiffany, I saw how they could add value. With Bulgari, it was difficult, but I saw it. And I think the, the biggest and golden move they did is put Baban there. Now, for all the Richemont brands, I don't think the LVMH will do better with Cartier than that Richemont did. Beaumarchais, they can. But at a certain point, when is too much, too much. So how many brands can LVMH handle, right? I think they have over 70 maisons today. 
So, and then they reach 100. And where's the end of it? How many can you handle? That's my question. Well, good question. And we we might be about to find out. I don't think that LVMH will do any better with Cartier than Richemont has done, but I do think that LVMH wants it. And I think that that one seems like it fits nicely in the LVMH tree. Not all Richemont brands do fit, in my opinion. I know Langer is a weird one to be part of the Richemont group anyway, but I don't see that as like a natural fit for LVMH. I'm not sure why I feel like that. Maybe because I see Langer as such a important horological institution and LVMH is a little bit more trend leaning. That's a bit harsh on some of the brands within it, but you know, it's more design led. It's more fashion, jewelry, luxury lifestyle, shall we say uh, in general. And having a brand like Langer in there, that's, that's a big responsibility. Same with Panerai as well, but I could see Panerai working with LVMH and yeah, I, I, I think that it could happen. I think it could happen. You know which one I think really would work well and they really want is Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. Yes. Think about it. Because they don't do anything in writing LVMH. So it's a new kind of category for them. And Mont Blanc is growing very rapidly with leather goods. They have the Pelleteria. And who's the king of leather? LVMH. So I think that's a very strategic fit. And, and it is number two for Richemont after Cartier in, in, in cash flow. Just so you know, a lot of people neglect Moulin, maybe the, the watch nerds like us, because we might not love their watches that much. So I think that will be an amazing strategic fit. Interesting stuff. I can see it working absolutely from that angle. Yeah, because I don't see Montblanc as a watchmaker first and foremost at all. And uh, I'm very often unenthused by whatever it is that they put out into the market. One or two nice pieces, and there have been moments in my collecting career where I felt more fondly towards Montblanc, but now pens, yes. Bags, okay. Notebooks, yeah, sure, why not? Luxury watches, no. Talking of luxury watches, uh, from a brand that you did mention in passing when referencing the Swatch Group and its wide spectrum of price points, Tissot have been active in the release market recently, and we got a question from one of our listeners regarding the new Tissot Seastar 1000 chronograph. This came in from Thomas in Lisbon, and he said, Tissot launched a new quartz version of the Seastar 1000 for 400 euros. People call this cheap, but I don't think it's that cheap for a quartz watch. Do you think it is? Alon, what do you think? Thank you for that question. Um, expensive and cheap is our words that I don't us use as a retailer. I say it's highly priced or it's a lot of value or it's a lot of money um, or it's and, and cheap. I would say, Hey, um, if I think it's a lot of value for money, I would say that way. Cheap is means that it's not good quality. So if I rephrase the, his sentence in seeing, Hey, they bring it as if it's a lot of value for what they offer. I love Tissot and I think Tissot gives a lot of value for money all around on everything they do. They did move up market, I think, quite a bit because we used to retail the brand. I, I remember back in the day, you had an, uh, a fantastic dress watch, automatic sapphire crystal, um, quartz, 150 euros, and automatic was 250 euros. Obviously, everything that was, uh, I don't know, five, seven, ten years ago doubled now. So if I double these numbers, do I think 400 for quartz is cheap? No. You could get same kind of brands or models, dive watches, 
steel bracelet with sapphire crystal, aluminum bezel, for less. But what I love about Tissot is that it's a Swiss brand and they do one thing good, is make decent watches for a good price. So kind of yes, but do I call 400 cheap? No, because cheap or expensive, I guess, depends on the benchmark and what do you compare it with. A brand that pops to my mind is Zodiac. They are really gaining ground. It's owned by the Fossil Group, but it's a Swiss brand, always been and stayed Swiss made. I would compare it to that. We spoke about Timex in our previous episode. Um, I, although it's not Swiss made, so maybe it's not comparing apples with apples. And, and then you have a zillion fashion brands that could compete on that level. But if you ask me to take a fashion brand that's a licensed brand versus a real watchmaker like Tissot, I would opt for Tissot. What do you think, Rob? Well, it's a good question because it's obviously quite relative based on your position, your stage of your collecting journey, your available funds. I mean, 400 euros, which by the way is a price, I don't even know where this price has come from because every C-Star 1000 quartz chronograph I've ever seen is over 600 euros, 625 to be precise. But um, if we say 400, okay, is it a good price for that watch? Materially, it's really decent. Yeah, I mean, it's a really well-made watch. Tissot benefits from the economy of scale that the Swatch Group brands always have in their locker. It's got nice applied, luminous numerals, big, broad, legible hands. There's a lot of depth to the dial. You can get different colors. has a bracelet if you're into that. That's a lot of watch for the money there. Yes, it's a quartz movement, and the module inside it probably costs about 10 or 15 euros to build. But it is what you'd expect from a quartz watch. It's reliable. It's got a decent battery life. It's got a date on there as well. I mean, it's highly functional for a 400 euro major brand watch. Would I buy it? No, I wouldn't buy it myself because I am not at that stage of my collecting life. Have I lusted over sea stars in the past? Yes, they have got a certain charm. I think they're very solid, very well-made watches. I see them as a bit passe now, a bit out of time. I think that they were very, very cool 10 years ago, and now they just look a bit outdated. But what can I say? If somebody bought one for 400 euros, I'm hardly going to say, oh my God, you were robbed. You know, it's, it's, it's a good watch for fair money, I think. Thank you for that. And uh, while you were talking, I just did a quick research. The quartz is in, in, in the Netherlands, 445 euros, including 21% VIT. And if you go opt for an automatic version, which is a Powermatic 80, it's 875. So about double the money. Um, interesting. You know, Rob, what I would like to do with you one time is uh, do a few uh, picks for budgets, let's say up to 500, up to 1,000, and then um, see what we come up with. It's actually interesting because we reverse engineer the market research, don't we? Yeah, it's really interesting to have those conversations. Always a fun exercise as well to test yourself and to get creative. I mean, for me, when it comes to sub 500 euro options, the first brand that pops to mind is actually Paulin, the sister brand of Anodane in Glasgow, because they make some really cool looking watches for yeah, about 400, 400 euros. 
450 euros maybe with the exchange rate and they have Seiko mechanical movements inside. So for me, that's an absolute stunner. For me, that's a showstopper. You're going to have to go some to beat a pal in sub 500, I think. But let's have that conversation. Let's let's put it let's put it on the list for another day. That's a good one. Please spell the Paulin one for our listeners. And I didn't even mention Psycho. I didn't think about them, but I guess they are the kings of value for money. Yeah, I think so. And you've got, obviously, you've got other Japanese brands like Citizen could easily uh, argue for the top spot, as could Casio, as could Swatch. So uh, Paulin is spelled P-A-U-L-I-N. It is based in Glasgow, run by three sisters and associated heavily with Anod Dane. Slightly to do with the fact that Lewis from Anordain is married to one of the sisters, Charlotte. There you go. If you want the inside, you come to the real time show. <laughs> We're all one big happy family. Oh, that's good. All right. Okay. Um, moving on to our next question. Uh, we'll stick with new releases, actually, because we had a few different ones coming this week. And I've picked out this one because it is a brand that we are quite well acquainted with. It's from Marie. Uh, the question came via email and she says, what are your thoughts on the new Nevada Grenshin F77 and what pieces do you think it will threaten? Good one. Have you seen the F77? So, yes, I've seen it pop by in my Instagram feed and um, I don't think it's a secret. I'm a big fan of Nevada Grenshin. Um, I bought my first one which was the collab with Time and Tide, which was the Chaos Master, which was a fun interpretation by our friend Oromaric Andre from Second Second. So love that watch. I've been in touch with Guillaume Ladev for quite some time. He's been on air. I really was bummed out I couldn't join that interview because it was a very funny episode. So I highly recommend you to listen to that episode. So there's actually not much that I don't like what Nevada Grenchen is doing. So I loved the first thing that popped out for me with the F77 was the, the logo of the, the model. So the F77 where they flipped the F basically. So I think that's super cool or actually it's not really flipped, but it seems like it's a seven in the same font. So it seems like it's flipped, but it's not. Obviously people will compare it to a Royal Oak because it has an octagonal a uh, bezel lunette with screws in it, but it's a revival of an old piece again. It's retro. Everything that Nevada Grenchen does today is revival. So that's their spiel. I think it's cool. I would love to see them making a new watch. So a Nevada of today. Very curious what that would look like. Second thing that I loved is the dial. So it seems like it's a braided mesh dial. And then if you look closely at the metal bracelet, it's kind of an integrated bracelet vibe. Um, it's actually very interesting how they did the first link in between the lugs of the case coming down. Um, that really spoke to me. What about you, Rob? I find that aspect in particular a bit troubling, actually. It was probably the aspect that I liked least about the watch in general. So they call this dial the Trest dial, and it looks rather similar, I must say, to the Flinke pattern that we all have enjoyed on the Chapek Antarctique. It's a little less angled and nuanced than that pattern, as one would expect for the price point, but it is very nice. It's much nicer, in my opinion, than carbon fiber weave dials, which are incredibly 
old hat these days, I think. But I am a fan of the idea behind this watch, definitely. I don't adore the bracelet fitting, like I said, but I do kind of like how much of a tool it appears to be because of it. It looks almost like a old-fashioned farming instrument. It's what it makes me think of. I could imagine it hanging on the wall of an old barn next to a hoe and a rake and a spade and the the bezel with the screws down also looks like delightfully over-engineered. The dial printing, superb. And the fact that it will likely drop in the sub, I don't know, it's going to be sub 2000, isn't it? Definitely. It's, it's, no, they communicate. They're doing a pre-launch in April for 995 US dollars. Okay, brilliant. I was, I was hoping it was going to be under, a, under a grand. That's great. Okay. So that's, that's brilliant. So pre-orders under 1000 full price will be under two, definitely probably under 15 from the sounds of things. That means it puts it squarely in contention with some pieces like the Tissot PRX. You know, when we look at the best luxury sports watches out there today, and while we're on this subject, I'd just like to mention tangentially, the term sports watch can sometimes get people a little confused, thinking that it is a watch that is literally intended to be worn while doing sports. But truth of the matter is, the vast majority of luxury sports watches aren't that suitable for sport at all. And you should really look at the term. This is just my way of explaining it. This isn't an industry standard, but I believe you should look at the term in the same way that we do a sports jacket. Okay. So a sports jacket is like a, you know, normally a a check, possibly tweed or heavy cloth smart jacket that you'd wear in the clubhouse after a round of golf rather than while golfing. So a watch like this is a steel sports watch that fits neatly into that after sports category, shall we say, the sort of elegant sporting lifestyle. And if you compare this to the the major ones like the Antarctique, like the Nautilus, like the Royal Oak, obviously it's in a different ballpark, but price-wise, because it's sort of in the wheelhouse of the PRX, it's uh, now creating, I think, a really nice, active, combative market of around a thousand euros for people that can't quite step up to the 15, 20, 25, 30,000 euro prices of those traditionally luxurious steel or titanium sports watches, but love the idea of it and want something similar for themselves. This addition to the market is brilliant for that reason because it just it will stimulate more brands in this sphere to do the same thing and i think that's only a good thing for consumers interesting so do you think that it's worth the premium let's say where the prx in the netherlands retails at 745 euros including vit for the powermatic 80 caliber so this is a bit more do you think it's good value for money then taking the analogy from the previous question yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely fine value for money for a couple of reasons. One, I think the design is is pretty ambitious for a brand like Nevada Grenchen in the size of Nevada Grenchen, much much smaller than Tissot, of course. So you'd expect the products to be more expensive just because they can't afford to make as many of them as cheaply. Um, you pay for design. You have to pay for design. People don't 
appreciate this often enough. There has been some serious work gone into this piece. And I think that in many ways it looks materially comparable or even superior to a PRX. I think the dial and the applied markers and the hands themselves with the nice, I love the faux rad loom on the black dial, much prefer that to the clear white on the blue, but I'm sure the blue will be very, very popular nonetheless. That's value adds right there. Those things are worthwhile. This whole proposition is definitely a competitor to the PRX. Is it worth the premium? Well, that depends. Do you like it more or not? I think that they're close enough in price for it to be much into muchness. I know that that's like you know, 25% cheaper. Um, the PRX is 25% cheaper than the F77. And to some people, that 250 euros will make a big, big difference. But for the most part, I'd say if you can afford to spend 750 euros on a watch, you can probably stretch yourself to 950 or a thousand if you need to, if it's going to be your one and only watch. And yeah, why not? I think that the Nevada is really exciting. I think that it's a bit off the beaten track and I think that it will be very successful for the brand. I'm quite sure it will be successful for them, especially because they start to push also on the Swiss made uh, label on this model. Um, so yeah, let's see. I'm very curious. Are you going to register your thing for the launch? Yeah, I think I'll register for the launch. I'm not sure if I'll buy one myself, to be honest. There are models that I do prefer still in the Nevada collection that I don't have yet. I'm still really upset with myself for not picking up one of the Koala Chronomasters that came out in uh, December, I think it was. The Savers Koala edition. Do you remember that one with Time and Tide? Of course, of course. They launched it just briefly after the Chaos Master uh, Chaos Masters were finished. So yeah, also super cool. Yeah, I just, I'm annoyed with myself about that one, but I just didn't have the available funds at the end of December, unfortunately. But there you go. That's really beautiful. So, yeah, it will be a chronomaster for me next from Nevada Grenchen, I think. Cool. Very cool. Going back into the mailbag. So we discussed the newly launched Moonshine Moonswatch. Neil sent another question about that watch. What are your thoughts on today's moon switch announcement? So that was last week. A natural progression of the model or are Swatch stretching this concept out a bit too far with this release? Given the initial negative response on their social media, are Swatch potentially damaging the moon Swatch product with this release and hype that came from the initial news? Well, I tell you what, that's fascinating, isn't it? That Neil, uh, one of our most avid listeners and a good friend of the show, refers to the reputation of the Moonswatch there in passing as as almost something to be protected. You know, are they damaging the Moonswatch? I would say that the Moonswatch has been one of the most battered, chewed up, ridiculed, mocked, derided, and simultaneously praised launches of history. I mean, it has taken basically all insults thrown at it in its stride its reputation is hardly squeaky clean you know there are hundreds of things that people had an issue with you know the denigration of the speedmaster legacy was one even though others saw it as the exact opposite and the proliferation of that legacy and i i agree with the latter camp i have to say you know that the use of bioceramic which is basically fancy plastic the fact that the neptune one just bled blue onto your arm and had to be removed from production, which is why they're so rare and expensive these days. And things like the distribution model was absolutely panned. So 
I don't think that Swatch gives too much of a damn, especially not when it's selling a million units of the thing, you know? So is it risking its reputation? No, because it's some more news and it's not totally ridiculous. It's actually quite a nice looking watch. You know, we said last week that it was, you know, inoffensive enough and or that we might even buy one ourselves if we came across one, given the relatively uh, small premium one is being asked to pay for the, the gold hand. So, no, I, I think that they can kind of do what they want, and I think that they will get away with it. And I don't think that we should really be too bothered about that. I think we should just let Swatch have a bit of fun. And like I've always said, if you want one, buy one. And if you can't get one, be patient. If you can't get one of these, shrug and wait for the next limited that might pop up in your neck of the woods you know it's not it's not that big a deal it's not the end of the world anyway it's just a laugh right right you're full-on spot-on correct swatch is meant to be fun it is volume it has nothing to do with exclusivity i don't think they want to be exclusive i guess they try to invoke that with the moon shine gold-plated hands but they're already left the loophole open by saying, hey, with the next full moon, there'll be more. They're not going to limit themselves and they shouldn't limit themselves and they should uh, milk it as much as they can because it is fashion and it was meant as fashion and Swatch was always meant to be fashion. So I think it's okay. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Always supposed to be fashion, a lot of fun and something that we just enjoy watching and talking about. I mean, it gives us something to do, right? It was endless, endless uh, conversations to be had about the Moon Swatch concept from all kinds of angles. Talking of the habit of watch collecting, we have a, another question, which I think will probably be the last one we address today, and it comes from the one, the only. <laughs> he, needs, he needs his own thing. Don't tell me it's Dad Dutch. It, yeah, it's Dad Dutch, yeah. Dad Dutch collection. He needs his own theme tune. We need, we need like a some kind of like really grimy, like, you know, heavy beat. You know, here he comes. He's walking into the room. He's got another haiku. Okay, this isn't a haiku, actually. It's rather short, and it's more like a statement. We're going to pick it apart, as we always do, because it's a lot of fun uh, interpreting Dutch's questions on the go. He says, Perverse watch semantics and how collecting and other terms became detached from mundane vernacular? Question mark. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of smiling um, while I'm reading it, because I'm, I'm really... Where should we go with this one? Collecting. Okay, so <laughs> the collecting is the focus of the sentence. It is in inverted commas. Um, what, what do you interpret it as? I love his, his poetry. It's, a, it's almost a haiku. The funny thing is, I guess it did not become detached from collecting. I think they drive consumers mad by saying, hey, one is not enough. So, I, I, I'm very curious what you would say, Rob. It's um, it's actually a very, very intellectual question. Yeah, well, I guess the main problem is that it's, it's not exactly a question. But I, I think that to raise the topic of collecting and what that means now is quite a salient one. Because I've been in a lot of watchmaking institutions in the past, surrounded by a lot of fellow watch lovers. And... Not all of them regard themselves as collectors, which I find kind of interesting. And that's what I'm taking this question to mean. It's what is the nature of being a collector? Like what makes you a collector? Is it somebody that has a lot of watches? 
Is it somebody that focuses on a particular type of watch, like steel sports watches, for example, or dive watches? Or is it somebody that focuses on a particular brand or a particular model, like a Speedmaster Fanatic, for example? That is an interesting question. A lot of my colleagues at Fratello, even I think even at one point RJ said it to me that he didn't regard himself as a collector. He regarded himself as a watch lover that bought a lot of watches. And I then sort of reflected on my own habits and I said, well, am I a collector? I refer to my collection quite frequently, but I don't think I do see myself as much of a collector. I am definitely more of a watch lover, a watch user, a watch wearer, a watch advocate, maybe. You know, I, I spread the, the good word about our industry as far and wide as I can. And to me, that's the most important thing is, you know, sharing these watches, which are so often born of connections between people and creating new connections with them thereafter. To collect something, I think, seems to me a more academic pursuit. My dad is a geologist, a paleontologist, and had uh, fossil collections uh, all around the house and in his, in his museum, of course, when we were younger. And I remember watching him catalog everything market with uh, reference numbers and you know make sure that everything was in its place and everything was arranged accordingly and i don't have the same obsession with my watches i don't seek out rare types of the models that i adore for anything other than my own enjoyment when it comes to wearing them so um i think that in some ways collecting is frequently misapplied to those of us that are deeply involved in this habit. But answer me this, Elon. Do you see yourself as a watch collector or are you more like me in terms of mindset? I always say for Red Bar Crew, if you have more than one watch, you're collecting, you're welcome. And you're also welcome if you love watches and you don't have more than one or none or whatever. So it's all about sharing the passion and knowledge and having a good time. Now... Am I a collector? Yeah, because I, I, I guess I have this compulsion to own and keep on buying and, and, and collectioning watches. Do I have a hardcore theme or red thread in my collecting of watches? I'm a bit all over the place and it's a kind of a joy, but maybe a burden, mostly for my wallet. Uh, my other hobby, sneakers, I think I'm a collector because the red thread of my collection is there, Jordan 1. And then I deviate to other models within a brand. And then I, I do want to try out almost every brand out there, which I do with watches as well. I want to experience them, but I have an issue of letting go. So my ex-colleague and buddy, Ruben, he, he's actually very interesting. He wants to experience it all. So he could be called a hardcore flipper because hardly anything stays in his collection. But he's rather young and he already has owned over 200 watches, which I found very refreshing and interesting to interact with him and talk with him and philosophize with him. But I'm not like that because for me, watches are also time capsules of a moment or a feeling or a special occasion. So they embody that. They're literally time machine. So just to let go of everything. No, I've also had a long and deep think about these hardcore collectors. So one of them, for example, is a colleague jeweler 
Lolo from Chrono Fashion in Paris. He recently, which is about two years ago, it's not that recent, sold off a big chunk of his private collection, which contained limited editions, prototypes, and maybe collabs he made with brands. And he sold that whole thing off. And then we had the Oak collection. I forgot the name of the gentleman who had a gigantic collection, let go. And you see that often with super collectors. At a certain point, they either, they've accomplished their mission of collecting and then they just set it free. Um, or they're just done with the hobby. Um, I don't think I'll ever reach that point with watches or sneakers for that matter. So, sorry, long answer. I do think I'm a collector. I do think that at one point I should maybe hone in on what I'm actually collecting and what I should collect. But for the time being, I'm 43 years old and I've collected stamps and swatches literally since I'm four and I'm almost 44. So that's four decades of collecting swatches. I like that I'm all over the place and maybe that brings the excitement and joy of collecting that you get this uh, injection of excitement every time you open uh, either your email box with newsletters or Instagram and you see new posts of new products. I don't know. That's the answer. You know, all I care about is that our listeners collect one thing and that is listens to The Real Time Show. Every time they see a new episode pop up online, I want them to get that little thrill of excitement that we get when we see a novelty drop or some other major news revealed in the watch industry. Okay, that'll do it for today. Nice one, Alan. Thanks again for bringing the energy and a lot of interesting answers and insights into watchmaking behind the curtain. If you'd like to be involved with the show, you can get in touch with us directly on Instagram, either at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alan Ben-Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or contact us via email, either rob at therealtime.show, or Alon at therealtime.show. We will be back next week with another Q&A session as we ramp up towards Watchers and Wonders, and then again later on in the week with an interview with one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>